Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim G.K. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Core Business Show. I'm sorry, we're just running a little late. Uh, technical problems, but today we're going to talk, continue to talk about our conversation on federal contracting, how to sell to the government. Uh, we, today is the FAR series, F-A-R, uh, and it's going to tell you what the procedures of the government look for when you actually look for contracting. So anyway, I'm just going to go ahead and start diving into the show. It's going to be divided into probably a little four segments, and we're going to take a break in between. Um, this show probably will last maybe like about 35 minutes. So anyway, this is a recording that uh, we did a presentation on last summer, and I thought it would, uh, would be a really good show topic to kind of explain the whole series. So again, we're going to talk about the series of the FAR, which is the regulation for federal contracting. Understanding the FAR. This is the FAR. And it's printed on uh, pretty much onion skin. So uh, I don't even know how many pages are in here, but uh, looks like 1975, 1977. You're welcome to peruse this during this three-day period if you have any specific questions and so on. Uh, it is a, uh, it's it's uh, republished by uh, CCH, who you probably heard of from the legal community, uh, twice a year, January and, uh, and July. I'm old enough to prefer it in the printed version. It is available online. <laughs> and it's And it's free online. You don't need to buy it. Uh, I just find it easier to find things uh, in in the printed version. I find it a lot more mobile than the uh, online version. But the online version is always up to date. So, uh, you know, the uh, middle of June, uh, when you're waiting for the next one to come out, if you have a question, you go to the online one and, and make sure that you got the very latest uh, uh, story on it. The problems that you're faced with when in going to a uh, and going to a regulation is that uh, how, how do you know to interpret it? Uh, 
how do you know what some of these things mean? And so we're going to try to show you some of that as we go through this, uh, to show you how to do the interpretation. Some of the things we mentioned earlier that you may have to reform your business in order to comply with some of the requirements of your contract come down to uh, contract administration rules uh, and responsibilities. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go and hire somebody to, to be a subcontract administrator or a contract administrator, but somebody in the business has to have that responsibility. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what those responsibilities are. What constitutes a contract? A contract is an agreement between uh, two or more parties that is binding on both of the parties and for which there is a uh, uh, consideration given. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Talk a little bit more building your infrastructure and then preparing your team. And it, a key point is it must have mutuality of assent. And we talked about the difference between a uh, an IFB and an RFP and an RFQ. Uh, if you submit a, a bid on an IFB, you've agreed to everything that's in there. And so uh, that's the mutuality of assent. The government wrote that, and you've agreed to it. In the case of an RFQ, you've submitted a response to the RFQ, but you haven't necessarily agreed to everything that's in there, and the government hasn't necessarily agreed to everything that's in there. That's why they have to come back to you with a contract after an RFQ. With an RFP, you can go back in response to an RFP and you can take exception to some of the things that are in the package. And that doesn't necessarily make you non-responsive because in an RFP, there's going to be some discussion between the, uh, the government and the contractor. Key point is they must be in writing. Mary Sue, you mentioned earlier that uh, they sometimes get you to write, get you to work before they have the funding, before they have the contract written. An oral contract is worth not worth the paper is written on, you know. <laughs> so they, they must be in writing if they're going to be enforced. And that's not to say that there aren't going to be times when, when you're going to do exactly what you're doing because you're willing to take a risk that's going to come about. Uh, once you get burned by that customer, uh, the second time you probably uh, don't take that risk. We used to have a very formal process in IBM called... Uh, MI45, Management Instruction 4-5. And anytime somebody wanted to do work before the contract was signed, it was a very laborious process to go through to get concurrence from our uh, financial brethren that uh, we ought to do that work because we were sure we were going to get paid. If we, <laughs> if we weren't sure, it didn't get approved. I guess a little, bit of, a little bit of the history of FAR. You know, when you try to do everything on a, on a low bid basis, you sometimes find yourself dealing with somebody that, that uh, perhaps can't do the business. And that's why the regulations were changed to allow the procurement uh, on a basis other than formal advertising. Some of these clauses that, you see, that you're going to see in the FAR, when you, they, they go back almost to the Revolutionary War. I mean, uh, you know, people have been taking advantage of the government uh, ever since we've had governments. You go back to the the building of the uh, pyramids in Egypt. You know that was government procurement. <laughs> somebody somebody had to uh, pay for those pyramids. Now the uh, 
up until the time that FAR came about, there were actually were two sets of uh, regulations, the Armed Services Procurement Regulation and the uh, Federal uh, Property Act. Both of them preferred the uh, low bidder basis, as does the, does the FAR as well. I mean, the first preference is to do things on a, on a formal advertised basis, except for, and I do take the exceptions. The reason for them being separate was that the, gov the, the Department of Defense always felt that it was special, so special that, that it couldn't use the same type of uh, procurement regulations as the rest of the government did. And, and there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly when you're buying weapon systems, you're doing things differently than when you're in the housing and urban development and so on. Uh, but they finally got together and uh, issued the FAR. And part of the reason was you, you have a, a certain government procurement workforce. And it's much better to have one set of regulations so somebody goes from Department of Defense to HUD. You know, they don't have to relearn the, the whole procurement regulations. So that was part of the driving force behind it. And we talked about earlier seal bidding and negotiated procurement. And when the Federal Acquisition Reform Act was promulgated, one of the key items was number one on there, increase the use of these multiple awards uh, contracts. Prior to this act being issued, if someone wanted to buy off of a uh, GSA schedule, they had to justify that using that uh, DNF process and so on. Uh, what this did was make a GSA Schedule Buy competitive by definition. The regulations now state that uh, when the GSA Schedule Buy is, uh, is effective, the contracting officer can check the box that says this is competitive. That was a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. When IBM had its uh, GSA Schedule contract for computers, they were issued on a yearly basis and you had to have your proposal in on the, the date the proposals were due, and then the negotiations were conducted, and a contract was awarded, and it was awarded for a year. And if you didn't have your proposal in on time, you didn't have a contract for that year. And we had, we had one contracting uh, manager in IBM one year that didn't get it in on time. So IBM went for a year without having a uh, GSA schedule. And that guy was no longer a contract manager. He wasn't fired, but he was no longer a contract manager. But what GSA did when, when that, that change was made to, to make these things uh, competitive by definition, they also at that same time made the people who administer this program within GSA paid out of the, uh, the fee that comes with each of those dollars. So suddenly these people became very interested in making sure that these contracts had a lot more use. And so they became much more easy to deal with. Uh, used to take maybe six months to get a change made to a schedule, to get something added or deleted or whatever. Now it takes a matter of weeks. Uh, because they want people to be using these schedules because they get paid out of the fee that comes out of there. They also have allowed use of electronic media, which uh, we've talked about earlier, payments and so on. And for GSA schedules, 
in particular, although in, in some of the other uh, GWACs as well, the government now accepts commercial pricing as the basis for the prices that are going to be in those contracts. Instead of going through a cost buildup and, and having to prove what your costs are and then negotiating what your profit is and so on, uh, if you've sold something in the commercial marketplace, that's accepted by the government as a basis for that price. Now, they're not going to want to pay that price. They're going to want a discount because, you know, we, as we said earlier, the government's the biggest uh, customer in the world. And so they're going to want a discount off your commercial price. But they're not usually unreasonable in that. They're not coming and saying, hey, you're charging $100. I want to pay 75 They're going to come to you and say, look, how about a discount of 5% or 3% or 6%? You know, they're not terribly unreasonable on that. And in many cases, you have a, a, a quantity discount schedule anyway. Uh, if somebody wants to buy 100 of what you buy, uh, you're going to charge them a different price than if somebody wants to buy 1,000 of what you sell. Uh, so the government's willing to look at the quantity discounts uh, for these contracts. But the basic, they're, they're uh, basically looking at your commercial pricing rather than your cost buildup. The most important parts are, uh, we, we've highlighted here with, with some more uh, later on, the government's very concerned about improper business practices. They want to make sure that nobody in the government, whether it be... Uh, uh, your actual customers or, or members of Congress or, or whatever are going to be benefiting from the fact that uh, this contract was awarded to you. So there are a lot of certifications uh, that are required. Uh, make sure that there's no uh, conflicts of interest. The, the reason the conflict of interest are looked at is that sometimes when you're in a service contracting mode, you may come up with a, with a resolution to a problem that requires... Uh, solutions that uh, are hardware or software related or, or whatever. And uh, if you also supply those solutions, then the uh, government looks askance at the analysis you went through in order to come to that solution. So in many cases, they will say there will be a conflict of interest clause that will be put into your contract for services that says that you can't supply the solutions that come out of those services. And you need to be aware of that because... If the bigger part of your business is the solutions, then you don't want to cut yourself out of that being able to supply those by getting the services up front because they may be a small part of the total solutions. So you want to be aware that uh, in any solicitation where that's going to be a potential problem, you want to be, you want to make, be able to make a conscious decision to go after that uh, services business, perhaps at the expense of being able to supply the solution. But that's another thing you just need to look at in the, uh, in the evaluation process. Uh, acquisition planning in the government is very important. They go through a very elaborate process of getting from the concept of what it is they want to buy, going through the, uh, the process of getting into the budgeting system, and then uh, who's going to run this acquisition. Do they input information into that process from uh, RFIs and, and sources sought, that sort of thing. Uh, and you need to be aware of that because in your marketing, you're going to be providing some of those inputs uh, that get into that acquisition plan. Acquisition of commercial items, that was a, a key item. You know, we, uh, the government often had uh, specifications for th things like peanut butter. Uh, they had groups that wrote these very detailed specifications for stuff that's available on the commercial market. You know, why did we need to do that? Uh, I was on a plane one time with a guy who was uh, selling uh, earth-moving equipment. 
And he said, you know, when I sell to the Corps of Engineers, I sell equipment that hasn't been used in the commercial marketplace in 20 years. Just because that's what their specifications say. And they were unwilling to change those specifications. And he said, so it costs them probably 40% more. Because the, the quantities are so small now, but the government, the Corps of Engineers, the only people in the world that buy this stuff. He said, I can't convince them that they need to go to the, get rid of those specifications and buy what's available in the commercial marketplace. I'm sure that's changed now. That was probably uh, eight or nine years ago. But the emphasis on the acquisition of commercial items was a big thing in the government, to get rid of these, these special items. Simplified acquisition procedures. How do, how do the government handle the acquisition of items up to $100,000? Key item to be aware of. Seal bidding, we've already talked about that in some detail. Negotiation, that's the RFP process. Types of contracts, we've already covered that in some detail, and we'll have some more on it. Uh, small business programs, patents, data, and copyright, and cost. Cost accounting standards can become very important if you're ever going to have a cost-type contract. They came about because Admiral Rickover, who was the godfather of the uh, nuclear navy, would go to a shipyard uh, where they were building him a uh, nuclear submarine. And one time when he was there, the costs would be overhead, and the next time he was there, they would be direct costs. And he never could get a handle on uh, uh, where these costs were going to be next time he came to look at them, because most ship contracts are built on cost-type uh, contracts. So he persuaded Congress to pass these cost accounting standards requirements. And they're not offensive because they don't say you have to have certain costs in certain places, but they say if you have them in certain places, they have to stay there. If you're in a competitive situation, you'd want a lot of those costs, a lot of direct costs to be in your overhead rate because they get spread across all your business. When you're in a sole source situation, those costs come out of your overhead and they go into direct charge. And that's what you're negotiating, that you've just relieved your overhead rate, which all the rest of your business is, uh, is incurring, and uh, put it all on this one sole source contract that the government's paying all the costs for. So that's what he, his point was, hey, I don't care how you do it, but you've got to be consistent. And that's what these cost accounting standards say. So if you get involved in a uh, cost-type contract as part of your business in the future, you must comply with those cost accounting standards. Uh, there's also a, a, always a big question as to what's an allowable cost. You know, you can't uh, charge the government for uh, a uh, conference that you send all your top uh, salespeople to and they bring their spouses along and have a great time in Hawaii. You know, that's not an allowable cost under government contracting. So there's a very good detailed set of principles and procedures. If, if you probably at some point, you may at some point, get involved in a protest. You didn't get an award that you were expecting to get, and, and you think there was something uh, untoward about it. Uh, the, the guy that won it claims to be a small business, and you don't think he is. So you go through the process of protesting that. Major system acquisition, I'm not sure that uh, that's going to apply to uh, any of the folks here, but when the government, particularly uh, most times uh, DOD, would go out to buy a major new uh, weapon system, there's a very detailed set of procedures they have to go through to document how they've decided what it is they're going to buy, who they're going to consider buying it from, 
uh, how the evaluations are going to be made, how the boards are going to be set up to do that evaluation. It's a very detailed process for major systems. Federal supply schedule contracting, that's the GSA schedule stuff that we're, uh, we're going to spend a few more minutes on. Because so much money has been spent on information technology over the years, a separate section was put in the, uh, in the FAR to uh, cover how that's handled. We had a question earlier about contract modifications. How does stuff get added to a contract? And this is a, a section that covers in detail how that happens. Government property becomes, uh, can become a, a real problem if you have a contract where government property is furnished to you in order to perform the contract. Uh, in many cases, that might happen in the business area of, of maintaining a, uh, a base or a section of a base. Uh, that has to be accounted for uh, extremely stringently. I mean, people go to jail because they lose track of uh, government property under a uh, government contract. Very, very serious. It has to be accounted for as closely as the costs do. So you have to have a, a government property accountability system set up in order to uh, keep track of it. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, termination of contracts. Uh, you can have uh, termination for default, and you can have termination for convenience. Uh, and then some of the solicitation provisions and, uh, and clauses. We talked about the government cannot spend money that it doesn't have. The Anti-Deficiency Act makes that very clear. Uh, it has to have been appropriated and assigned to that contract and allocated to that contract. Uh, and again, uh, people have gone to jail on the government side for inducing people to uh, work and, and then not being able to come up with the money. Truth in negotiations. When you're in negotiation as a result normally of a result of an RFP or of a contract modification, you, you certify that you've provided all the relevant information that impacts on the, uh, the cost and performance of that particular uh, contract modification that you're negotiating. Uh, and there are serious uh, criminal penalties with failure to do that. This is that... Uh, conflict of interest thing. You, you have to have very, very proper behavior. False Claim Act. When you submit an invoice, you certify on an invoice as a, an officer of the company that the invoice is in accordance with the terms of that contract. And if it turns out that you were incorrect, it can be serious consequences. Freedom of Information Act, you can, you can go in under Freedom of Information Act and get information on virtually anything within the government. But the only thing that's going to be withheld is classified information or information, financial information that's specific to another company. They, they obviously, you don't want your information out with your competitors, and the competitors don't want you to get their information. So that would be withheld. But almost anything else is, uh, is fair game. That's not to say you're going to get it tomorrow when you request it today. Uh, you might, <laughs> it might take three months, it might take six months, because in many cases they don't want to give it to you. So they drag their feet. Termination for convenience. Uh, when you're dealing with the government, you're dealing with the sovereign. So the sovereign, you know, makes the rules. Well, when, when the sovereign's at war and the war ends, you know, they need to be able to stop the contract building tanks. And so they say we have a termination for convenience provision, and so when we no longer need what it is that you're doing under your contract, we can stop that contract for convenience. Now, they have to pay you for whatever you've done and so on, but it's just a convenience thing. Now, 
They can't terminate you for convenience and then tomorrow go back on another solicitation to buy exactly what you were supplying under your contract. They have, there has to be a determination within the agency that we no longer need this product. That's why we're going to terminate for convenience because there's costs associated with the termination. Termination for default is a little more uh, ticklish. You don't want to be involved in a termination for default because uh, you're probably going to be excluded from any business with the government for, up to, say, up to three years. We had a case one time at IBM where we were, had a contract for a, a small laser. This was back in the early days of lasers. And the, the lab was building. It was away from where I was in Gaithersburg. And we've been checking on a regular basis. Yeah, we're coming along fine. Well, we got a, a letter from the contracting officer saying, hey, there's indication that uh, you're not making any progress on this contract, so tell me within 10 days why uh, I shouldn't terminate this contract for default. A 10-day cure letter is what they're termed. And so I went into the, uh, the uh, division uh, director who was responsible for that and showed him the letter and said, uh, you know, we really need to get hot on this. And uh, he said, well, you know, we really had, it wasn't really a very big laser. Why don't we just let them terminate for default? And I said, well, you know, I've been at IBM now for uh, about five years, and uh, IBM has never had a termination for default in its history. And I personally am never going to be associated with a termination for default. So get that thing built. <laughs> and we had it built within the time required in the contract and delivered it. But this guy, see, this guy had come into IBM from uh, outside. He had none of the, uh, the culture and so on. He said, well, let him, let him, you know, we're not interested. Let him default. So you don't want to be involved in a termination for default. That's a very, very bad thing. You must perform those contracts. Changes clause. You know, the changes clause has been touted as the ability to change the contract to do anything. You know, like you have a contract for a submarine and you can change it into a contract for aircraft. Well, you can't do that. The changes clause can only direct you to do something that's within the general scope of the contract. Now, when the change is issued within the general scope of the contract, you have to perform it. You don't have a choice. However, you also, at the same time, can go back to the government and tell them what the impact is on the cost and what the impact is on the schedule. And if the cost impact is unacceptable to the government, then they're going to withdraw the change. So you don't have to perform a change that the government's not willing to pay you for. Limitation of funds, costs. You have to note it when you're, particularly when you're on a, a cost-type contract or, a, in fact, only when you're on a cost-type contract or a level-of-effort contract, you must go back and tell the government when you're getting to uh, the end of the funds. Uh, and you normally have to do that within uh, 30 days of getting to the point. And, and this is a, a practical thing to allow them to go and get more money. A lot of socioeconomic clauses, a lot of the small business stuff and so on are all associated with the, the socioeconomic considerations. Debarment and suspension. Uh, debarment, uh, obviously, if you get terminated for default or if you've had actions that were inappropriate with government officials, accepting funds or, or whatever, uh, then you're going to get uh, debarred and probably suspended. We just talked about the termination for convenience of the government uh, and termination for default. Now, termination for convenience, you're going to get paid all your costs. Termination for default, you're not going to get paid any of your costs. <laughs> and you may be subject to uh, re-procurement costs. If you're terminated for default, 
the government can go back out and buy what it was they were buying from you, and they can charge you the difference if the new contract is more expensive than the one you had. We just talked about the uh, changes. 75%, I, say, I said 30 days is 60 days. When you hit 75% of the budget, you have to notify them within uh, 60 days. A lot of causes, uh, you know, the Equal Opportunity Act, the Fly American Act, Buy American Act, all of those are very, very detailed in the solicitations, particularly if you're providing uh, items rather than services. Then you need to be very conscious of what those Buy American Act uh, uh, clauses say. You have to certify that you have drug-free workplace, certify clean air water, certify Equal Opportunity Act. You have to have posters in your workplace. Fly American Act, uh, if you're using uh, aircraft for uh, delivery items, you need to use uh, American-owned companies. There's also uh, an act that covers shipping as well. The subcontracting clause, uh, we already covered the details of that. Punishment for misconduct uh, may last up to three years. And so in review, do you have the internal processes needed to be in business? Do you have the ability to control your costs and report your costs and, and relate your costs to your invoices and so on if you're time and material contract? Uh, do you have the people trained in order to do these things? Timekeeping. You know, as they say, there's, there's uh, uh, a lot of products out there in the marketplace that you can buy that take care of the timekeeping problems and the, uh, the accounting system. And the accounting system needs to track these hours and so on so you can go from that tracking right to your invoicing. And, and at some point in the conduct of your contract, somebody's going to come in and audit these practices and procedures. The contracts folks uh, are generally responsible for maintaining compliance, uh, contract files. They do most of the communications with the uh, contracting officers. And in many cases, they also will administer uh, subcontracts. Depending on the size of the organization, you get one person doing all of these. And that person may, may be you if it's a really small business. Your marketing folks, this, this can be key because if you have sold your products based on commercial prices, then your marketing folks can't be out willy-nilly selling those products for lower prices than you're selling them to the government for because the government's going to want those lower prices. So you have to be careful. Your marketing folks know what your contract says and know what the procedures are. And you have to set up a procedure that if they want to deviate from the normal prices, they have to come back to you and get permission to do that. If you have a, a proposal group that will uh, coordinate bid and proposal, lots of times you're going to want to have that in a central location because you don't want people bidding to uh, several different uh, activities for the same products. Because, number one, it's going to be more cost-effective if you have one group doing it. And, number two, you might have different uh, stories being told to the ultimate customers. And these people do talk. <laughs> So we, the contracts folks would go through the process here of uh, reviewing and communicating and uh, reviewing pricing. The, the reps and search, and we talked about the ORCA. Normally a contracts person will uh, lead the negotiations, but again, in a small company, the, uh, the owner of the company is going to do the negotiations. 
somebody in the uh, organization, whether it be a contract guy or whatever, has to be involved in ensuring that you're in compliance. Uh, have to be involved in ensuring that we have proper timekeeping, that stuff is being recorded. Cost accounting system, reporting requirements, there's always going to be some sort of reporting requirements, and those have to be complied with. When, you, when the contract is closed out, that system that you put in place to account for government property, that all that property has to be uh, uh, accounted for and then disposed disposed of. The government's going to give you instructions on how to, how to dispose of it. In many cases, they're going to say, sell it uh, for what you can get for it, and then credit us the, uh, the amount of that. Or they're going to say, ship it off to contract ABC, who's going to be working on something similar. And then the final invoice. There has to be a final invoice for every contract that says, okay, the contract's finished, and here's my final invoice. And uh, that has to be the, the contracts function normally does that because that's a checking back into all the terms of the contract and make sure everything has been complied with. And when that final invoice is signed, that's what the person is saying when they've signed that final invoice. Hey, everything in this contract has been complied with. I am now due this money. And then there's always a uh, lessons learned. Whether that be at the end of the contract, you go back and look to see how well you did or how well you didn't do or you have a lessons learned uh, after a uh, unsuccessful bid. You always want to have a lessons learned after a bid process because if you won, you want to be able to tell everybody in the company why you won. And this was a great deal because, because, because. And if you lost, you want to request a debriefing on the part of the contracting officer and be told specifically why you lost. And then you want to be able to use that within the company. Hey, we lost because, because, because. And we have to fix those things. Those are very, very key exercises you have to go through. Thank you for listening to the Core Business Show. That's a description about FAR, uh, the federal uh, regulation on how contracts are done. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can download this episode on iTunes on Block Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. And we will continue our series for the next seven days um, on how to sell products to the government. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to The Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.